0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Cybercognition Podcast, a show about artificial intelligence and how it is transforming the world around us with your biological, sentient, and mostly rational human host, Hutch. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the new Cybercognition Podcast. I am your host, Justin Hutchins, a.k.a. Hutch, and in honor of this being our first episode, I thought it might be fun to jump into the Wayback Machine and to talk about the early days of artificial intelligence. Today's story brings us all the way back to the mid-1960s, in the infancy of the emerging computer era, back to a time when normal people did not have computers. For the most part, Computers were the exclusive property of governments, large corporations, and research institutions. These computers were often closet-sized mainframes with vacuum tubes and punch cards used for input and output. There was no social media, no internet, and no personal computers. During that time, a computer scientist from MIT named Dr. Joseph Weizenbaum created ELIZA. ELIZA was the earliest documented chatbot. ELIZA was computer software which was designed to simulate conversation with a human. It was an early form of what we commonly refer to as natural language processing, that is the artificial simulation of human-like conversation. Specifically, ELIZA was designed to act as a psychotherapist, inspired by the work of the well-known clinical psychologist Carl Rogers. When a person would sit down to interact with ELISA, the system would begin the conversation by asking the person about their problems. As the user replied, the ELISA system would, similar to a psychologist, take the responses from the user, translate those responses into probing questions, and encourage deeper and deeper introspection and self-analysis. This was achieved through various pattern matching techniques. Weizenbaum had actually created Eliza for the purpose of demonstrating the limitations and the superficiality of artificial intelligence. He deliberately made his system a psychologist because that would be an easy way to continue a conversation without having to supply the system with any real knowledge of the world. Instead of contributing in any substantive way to the conversation, the system could just transform the comments of the user into further questions. This approach allows the user to exclusively define how the conversation progresses. This creates the perfect smokescreen to create the illusion of intelligence, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But to provide a better understanding of how this system worked, let's look at a brief conversation with Eliza, transcribed in a, a recent article from Medium.com. As I read this conversation, notice how Eliza simply adapts the user responses to ask additional questions. Aliza opens up the conversation with, How do you do? Please tell me your problem. The user replies, I have trouble keeping my houseplants alive. Aliza replies, Your houseplant's alive? The user then responded, Yes, I forget to water them sometimes. Aliza responds, Are you sure? The user says, I am sure. Aliza asks, Do you know anyone else who is sure? The user answers, My plants are sure. Aliza asks, why do you say your plants are sure? So, You'll notice in each of these cases that the system is either reflecting the input from the user back to the user in the form of a question or asking very general questions to encourage the user to explain their position further. At no time is the ELISA system actually contributing anything meaningful to the conversation beyond just encouraging the user to continue to perform further introspection. Of course, the encouragement of the user to perform further introspection is is sometimes all you need in order to achieve a substantial breakthrough in clinical psychology. And this is a lot of times exactly how clinical psychology works. Uh, If people are encouraged to look deeper into themselves for answers, they'll often discover things about themselves that they had not previously considered. So, despite Weizenbaum's intentions to demonstrate the limitations of AI, AI, With Elisa, Weizenbaum was shocked to see people begin to confide in the Elisa system, to open up to it, and to even tell it their deepest and darkest secrets. On one occasion, Weizenbaum's assistant even asked him to leave the room so she could speak candidly with the system. When people interact with technology that was built to simulate human interactions, there's a natural tendency to falsely attribute human thought processes and emotions to those systems thus believing that the systems are more intelligent than they actually are this tendency to anthropomorphize chatbot technology has come to be known as the eliza effect and we'll circle back to the eliza effect a little bit more in a moment a few years later after eliza was created a west coast psychiatrist from stanford university named kenneth colby created perry which was another chatbot inspired by eliza Instead of being a psychiatrist, though, Perry was created to simulate the conversational patterns of a schizophrenic. That's right, this was Perry the Paranoid Schizophrenic. And similar to Elisa, Perry also used a sort of cheap parlor trick to help compensate for its lack of genuine intelligence. It was intended to be a schizophrenic, so any comments which were perceived as unusual, strange, or unhinged could just as easily be dismissed because, well, he's a schizophrenic. And schizophrenics often say things that are unusual, strange, and unhinged. So now we've got Elisa, the robotic psychiatrist, and we've got Perry, the robotic schizophrenic, who's in desperate need of treatment. This was also around the same time that the leading technologists were attempting to prove out the value of the ARPANET, which was the predecessor to the internet. And you can probably see where this is going. I'm going to read briefly from an article from the Atlantic entitled "When Perry Met Eliza." In 1973, as a demonstration during an international computer conference, the computer science pioneer Vint Cerf described or decided to take the bots to their logical conclusion. Using ARPANET, he set up a conversation between Eliza and Perry. It was a bicoastal meeting of the computer minds. Eliza was based in MIT, Perry at Stanford. So that's right, as a PR stunt to demonstrate the usefulness of the ARPANET and the emergence of AI, Perry was connected to ELISA for the first transnational computer therapy session ever conducted. The full transcript of this conversation between the two systems uh, was recorded in RFC 439, which we will link in the show notes. First, uh, let's take a moment to appreciate the real context here. These events, once again all took place prior to the internet, prior to the modern computer age. No person even had a personal computer at home. And yet the academic elites have an East Coast robotic psychologist having a remote therapy session with a West Coast robotic schizophrenic in real time over a national backbone of routable computer communications. Can you imagine being a? typical non-computer-owning peasant at the time and getting a whiff of what was going on at these universities. Imagine the optics of this spectacle from the perspective of an average American at the time. From the perspective of the masses, this was technological voodoo and witchcraft at best. But if you think about it, this was the perfect stage for the perfect smokescreen performance. It couldn't possibly fail. No matter what was said, the conversation would be defensible. Aliza could be expected to only respond to comments with probing questions. That's what she's supposed to do because she's a psychiatrist. And Perry would very likely make comments that seem strange, but also, no surprise, he's a schizophrenic. The most impressive thing is that natural language processing systems even in the late 60s and the early 70s were able to cast this spell of the Eliza effect and to lure people into a trance that would have them subconsciously assigning otherwise human characteristics to a computer system. Now fast forward 50 years into the future and consider what this means for today. Language systems, especially... In the recent past, with the introduction of the transformer architecture, which was the basis of systems like ChatGPT and BARD, these systems are exponentially more impressive than the systems of the late 60s and early 70s. I'm now going to quote from a white paper written by Murray Shanahan of the Imperial College of London. Thanks to rapid progress in artificial intelligence, we have entered an era when technology and philosophy intersect in interesting ways. Sitting squarely at the center of this intersection are large language models. The more adept large language models become at mimicking human language, the more vulnerable we are to anthropomorphism, to seeing the systems in which they are embedded as more human-like than they really are. This trend is amplified by the natural tendency to use philosophically loaded terms, such as knows, believes, and thinks when describing these systems. Where we have arrived now is far beyond anything that we have seen before. These systems can unquestionably pass the Turing Test, and for anyone who is not familiar, the Turing Test was an experiment that was proposed by Alan Turing to determine if a computer could adequately simulate human intelligence. But the Turing test was a blind test. That's to say that the the subject was hidden away from the observer, such that the observer doesn't know whether they are communicating with a human or with a machine. I say that we are far beyond the Turing test because we now have intelligent and well-educated people who, while knowing that they are interacting with a machine, still seemingly believe it to be sentient, or at least something akin to human intelligence. In the movie Ex Machina, Uh, which is a fascinating movie related to the philosophical and ethical challenges of artificial intelligence. But in that movie, there is a tech executive who asks an employee to perform a kind of Turing test against his latest AI Android system named Ava. But in the movie, the Android system is not hidden away from the observer. The employee points out that the approach is not consistent with a true Turing test. And I'm now going to quote the response from the executive in the movie. He said... We are way past that. If I hid Ava away from you and you just heard her voice, she would pass as human. The real test is to show you that she is a robot and then see if you still feel she has consciousness. And that is precisely where we're at now. Even with people having direct knowledge that they are interacting with computer systems... There is still an unconscious, and in some cases even conscious, natural tendency for people to attribute to them common traits of human intelligence, such as sentience and consciousness. In June of 2022, an AI ethicist from Google named Blake Lemoyne was suspended and subsequently terminated after leaking multiple transcripts of conversations with Google's latest large language model system at the time. He leaked the transcripts to support his claim that the system was sentient. That system was called Lambda, which stands for Language Model for Dialogue Applications. Lambda was comparable to a service-connected version of the now consumer pre-release version of Bard, which is Google's direct market competitor to ChatGPT. I want to be clear in saying that I don't personally think that Blake Lemoine, that Google, or Google leaker, is a delusional nutcase, uh, as he's frequently portrayed by much of the rest of the industry. His position largely stemmed from his interpretation of the term sentience, and his opinion on the appropriate criteria for evaluating it. And unfortunately, before we can even have the discussion of whether or not these systems are sentient, we need to address the problem of semantics. When I use words like alive, or sentient, or human, or understanding, I may mean something very different than what you mean when you use those same terms, or even different still from what Blake meant when he used those terms. While I don't agree with Blake's conclusions, it's largely due to the fact that I don't agree with the terms and criteria that he uses. But I don't want to dwell too long on the deep philosophical question of whether AI systems could ever achieve sentience. I think it's a fascinating topic, and probably one that we will address in a later episode, but for now I want to focus specifically on the Elisa effect that human tendency to assume deeper human attributes like sentience and consciousness in a system for which all evidence points to it not actually having those attributes. A simple intuition of how these systems work seems to suggest that these attributes could not possibly emerge based on what's actually going on under the hood. These are just highly complex statistical language models. The output from these systems is not the result of any deep thought, but rather statistical computations of the most likely next word in a sequence. If you start typing a message on your phone, and then you start clicking the suggested next word repeatedly, that's essentially what ChatGPT and BART are doing. Obviously, there are much more complex versions of that, with larger training samples and with way more parameters to identify logical connections. Uh, But the way that they operate at a high level, or specifically just statistical prediction of language sequences, is ultimately no different. Uh, Noam Chomsky recently wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times, The human mind is not, like ChatGPT and its ilk, a lumbering statistical engine for pattern matching, gorging on hundreds of terabytes of data, and extrapolating the most likely conversational response, or most probable answer to a scientific question. On the contrary, the human mind is a surprisingly efficient and even elegant system that operates with small amounts of information. It seeks to inf- not to infer brute connections among data points, but to create explanations. Unfortunately, the ELISA effect and the general failure to acknowledge these systems for what they are, just really complex statistical engines, can have some serious consequences. I recently saw an article about a professor at a university who was taking student essays, pasting them into ChatGPT, and then asking ChatGPT if it generated them. If ChatGPT claimed that it did generate them, the professor would fail the student. The professor seemed to think that ChatGPT was some kind of superintelligence entity with continuous consciousness and that could either remember other conversations that it had had or somehow had some supernatural knowledge that would allow it to determine who had written a given sample of text. There are so many things wrong with this. In truth, the system is operating within a completely different context for each conversation it has. It has no access to the data from other user sessions or even previous conversations within the same user account. And even if it did have access to that data, the systems are not built to generate true content as output, but rather probable content as dictated by their training samples. More importantly, it is a language system. It's not a classification system. It generates text. It doesn't make determinations as to the classification of some kind of input. There are actually tools that are intended to identify gen- or generated text, uh, but ChatGPT is certainly not one of them. And even still, many of the tools that are intended for that purpose are not very accurate in their conclusions. The Eliza effect is becoming an increasingly common problem in the wake of the recent AI explosion. And this is just one example of how the ELISA effect can have major negative consequences. Not only did this professor's actions demonstrate a serious misunderstanding of how these systems even work, But he also allowed that misunderstanding to potentially ruin lives of students by unjustly accusing them of academic dishonesty. And unfortunately, this is just one example of many recent similar problems that we've had with these large language models. As a society, we need to do better. If we are going to integrate these systems into our daily lives, we need to be better informed about how they work. And that is a responsibility for each of us individually. We need to understand what they are, understand their limitations, and not allow unfounded, subconscious psychological tendencies to dictate our actions. All of us need to do better. And that's all for today. As always, this is Hutch, broadcasting from the last bastion of the human resistance. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Over and out.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode of the CyberCognition Podcast with Putch, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company, and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit ITSPMagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.